and welcome to session number two of our uh, Proverbs class uh, on Noahide Nations. I really appreciate you uh, joining us. And uh, let's see, a couple of logistical things before we get started. Um, I wanted to let you know of several dates uh, that I know of through July when we will not have class. Generally, class is uh, every Sunday night at 5 p.m. Pacific or 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we will not have class on June the 28th, July 12th, and July 26th. So, no class, and I'll type this in here so you can see it. No class on June 28th, July 12th, or July uh, 26th. Um, otherwise, we should be uh, good to go for uh, uh, at least a few months, and I'll keep you updated and remind you as we get uh, close to those dates. Um, then, if you've been in one of my classes before, you know that one of the things that we like to do is do uh, at least a little bit of review, and I'd like to just touch on a couple of important things that we discussed last time. We're going to use uh, a, a key tool of inquiry in this course in Proverbs, and that is to ask questions. And one of the first things that we want to do when we tackle any new proverb or any piece of uh, Torah or Tanakh, uh, or even in things we will do in the outside world, uh, is to ask questions about that. So as we go along, I'm going to ask you to work with me in that as we uh, explore the Proverbs. And our aim is to try to abstract the concepts and the ideas out of the verses that we see to try to understand what was King Solomon trying to get across to us in this particular verse. He's giving us, and we're working through chapter 10, lots and lots of specific cases. And what we want to do is try to figure out what's the principle, what can we learn from that, uh, what is he trying to tell us. Also, I would encourage you uh, not to be surprised if all the commentators don't necessarily agree. Uh, they won't necessarily um, contradict each other, but there are different ways to interpret the verses, sometimes depending on how you read it in the Hebrew, uh, sometimes just depending on the way that it's it's uh, actually interpreted. So the commentators may have uh, different interpretations, and in fact some commentators have more than one interpretation uh, of a particular verse. And so that just allows us to uh, explore more options and uh, more opportunities to understand different ideas and different ways that the concepts uh, could be applied. So before we tackle our next verse, any questions left over from last week or anything that you would like to make sure that we cover this week? And I will take no response as a no. So uh, if you do, let me know. Otherwise, let's move on. Last week we covered an introduction and we covered Proverbs chapter 10 verse 1. Like to move over, move on to chapter 10 verse 2. And it reads like this: The treasures of the wicked will not benefit him, that is the wicked, but charity saves from death. The treasures of the wicked will not benefit him, but charity saves from death. So, what are the questions? What questions could we ask around that verse 
in order to try to understand it clearly. The treasures of the wicked will not benefit him, but charity saves from death. Any ideas about questions? Or maybe I should ask if it's if it's lucidly clear. Where is this verse found? Uh, Rena, it's in Proverbs chapter 10, and it's the second verse. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. The treasures of the wicked will not benefit him, but charity saves from death. Let me ask you this. Does anybody understand what the verse means? And remember, this is a very interactive class, so... You know, it's okay to put something out there and uh, an idea or, or whatever. This, this is the process of how we learn this, okay? So just to, to reiterate something I mentioned last week, this is very much not a, um, uh, not a, a straight lecture type of class. Uh, we learn about Proverbs by wrestling with the ideas in Proverbs and trying to figure out, okay, what do they mean? What are they saying? Uh, it's a little bit like kneading bread dough, you know. The more you knead it, um, then, you know, you, you just get more involved in the process. Okay, so Sue, how will the treasures not benefit him? That's a very good point. The first path says the treasures of the wicked will not benefit him. How does that work? Um, you know, they're, they're, why wouldn't they benefit him? I mean, if, if a wicked person gets lots of money... Uh, you know, why Why not? In fact, we could ask the question, what are the treasures of the wicked? Uh, and, once we figured that out, then we'd want to ask, why won't they benefit him? Seems like they should. Okay. Okay, and Rena, good. Treasures acquired through wickedness. Let's see if we can get the questions on the table first, and then we'll then we'll start tackling them and uh, and uh, go to answers. One of our our uh, process steps here is we want to try to get every question out first, and then uh, start looking at uh, how to come at at getting the answers. So we've got what are the treasures of the wicked? Why won't they benefit him? What about the second half of the verse? Any questions on that? It says, charity saves from death. Okay, and Diane, you pointed out the Talmud notes that King Solomon says twice that charity rescues from death. Okay, and I'm not sure if you're referring to a different place in Proverbs, which may be the case. I have a vague recollection that there is a second verse that Notice that, or if you're referring to another source, but um, here. Ah, Diane, thank you. Okay, Proverbs eleven four. Okay, 
And Rini said on the day of death it will not save him spiritually. Um, that could be, but let's see if we can focus the question on, um, I guess, what we might call the practical side of life. Mishle is a very, very practical book. Uh, very much about, uh, you know, things that happen in our, in our practical everyday lives. Um, uh, the question that I might ask is, well, how does that work? I mean, what does charity have to do with death? Uh, I mean, most everybody dies, uh, as far as I can tell. So how can King Solomon say that charity saves from death? Um, and and Rena, you're you're saying yes on the day of judgment, but can we find can we find an example of how that could work in in the world? Uh, I guess not in looking at uh, necessarily the world to come or the reward that might come after the world, but in but in this world, is there a, a way we could see the application of that in the world that we um, have to deal with here? So let's just get the question on our on our board or on the table here. How does charity save from death? Because I could make a real good argument that I don't think it does, not in terms of practical physical death because everybody dies. So what could King Solomon have been referring to there? And then I guess there's one other question that pops out at me. We talked last week about how King Solomon organized these proverbs usually as a contrast between one thing and another, between good and evil, between rich uh, or rather between uh, the, the wise and the foolish. Uh, and, and that type of thing. Yet here, we don't seem to have a very clear contrast. He's saying, the treasures of the wicked will not benefit him, but charity saves from death. What does one half of this verse have to do with the other half? Okay. And, Rena, you've raised an interesting point. Actually, treasures of any help do help short term. Right. So, how can we say then, that the treasures of the wicked won't benefit him. What is King Solomon trying to get at? Okay. So, we've got four questions down on the table. What are the treasures of the wicked? Why don't the treasures of the wicked benefit him? How does charity save from death? And what's one half of the verse have to do with the other half? Any other questions we ought to get on? Or does that seem like it kind of covers the waterfront of at least what we ought to be figuring out, or hopefully figuring out. Okay, so let's move on and see if we can tackle some of this. And I'm going to suggest that we take on perhaps the, uh, what might be the simplest of those questions uh, at the beginning, which is, what are the treasures of the wicked? And I believe that, Rena, you uh, hit on that one. You mentioned that uh, that's treasures acquired through, through wickedness. That would be referring to monetary gain or some kind of material gain that we get, or a person gets, rather, through wicked or evil activities. Things like acting unjustly, using false weights, swindling other people, theft. Uh, oops, I'm sorry. 
uh, my phone rang and it uh, tends to cut off my internet connection just briefly so um, let me back up and uh, back up to I think we've got our four our questions covered down so let's talk about the first one what exactly are the treasures of the wicked and uh, the treasures of the wicked, uh, Rena, you had mentioned, are, um, let me just cycle back up here, uh, treasures acquired through wickedness. So any type of monetary gain or material gain that a person gets through uh, wicked or evil activities. So things like uh, a person acts unjustly, they use false weights, they swindle other people, they steal, um, that type of thing. And uh, Rena, you've asked if uh, we could get the questions up on the whiteboard. That's a good point. Let me just type them in real quick uh, here on our text screen. So we're looking at what are the treasures of the wicked. And our second question is, why don't the treasures of the wicked benefit him? And our third question is, how does charity save from death? And our fourth is, what does the first half of the verse have to do with the second half? Okay. So, and Rena, yep, you mentioned the material treasures are temporal, but then, you know, just about everything we have in the physical world here is temporal. Um, and the verse specifically is focused in on the wicked. So, let's look at the second question, because if we've identified that treasures of the wicked are monetary or material gain that a person gets through... Um, wicked activities, evil activities, acting unjustly, then the question is, why won't those things benefit him? I mean, if a, if a person goes out and robs a bank and, you know, has the money, let's say they got away with it. So now they've got, you know, pick your amount, 100,000, half a million, five million, whatever it is. Uh, why won't those things benefit him? Any thoughts about that? Ah, Arena, very good. They worry about it. And why would they worry? Okay, good. They'll worry that they get caught. So there's a huge potential amount of conflict that can happen there. Because, yeah, I have a big bank account, but I also have to keep looking over my shoulder all the time because I know I didn't get that money properly. And so, uh, you know, it could come back to, uh, to bite me uh, at any point. Uh, consequences down the road, absolutely. And Diane, you've said it will not save them from danger. So I'm not sure quite what you mean there, or what kind of danger you're thinking of. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? So let's consider a, a situation 
where a person is in trouble and needs help. Okay, not sure what the trouble is, but you know, some kind of difficulty in life, maybe I ran short of money or my house burned down or whatever. Uh, I, I need uh, some type of help. Okay, and Diane, you've said when judgment comes, and I'm assuming you're meaning an eternal judgment, it will not save them. Okay, and that's true, but again, I want to pull us back to uh, Michelet being very practical in the physical world, the world that we have to deal with on an everyday basis. If a person has acted unjustly, and, and everybody knows that, I mean, you know, you kind of figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are after a while, then I'll suggest to you that that person will have alienated himself from the people around him in the community because of his evil deeds. I mean, when a person acts untrustworthy, people consider him untrustworthy. And so, the community won't support him when he gets to be uh, in a difficult spot. Now, this is a very, very practical thing. It's not anything magical. I mean, as I mentioned before, Michelet is very concerned with practical everyday life. And that's why we want to analyze the verses to see how they really work uh, in, in the world in which we live. Sometimes uh, people tend to look at things that have to do with what we could call religious matters, um, and they assume that there's like some magical component to it. And we don't necessarily call it magic, but it's similar in that we, we might think that something will happen without seeing a clear cause and effect. Uh, like, you know, somehow God will just intervene and, and that person will get their just desserts or whatever it happens to be. Mishlei, we're looking for a way we can really see this happen in the real world. Uh, and, and we need to try to reason it out so that we can actually see um, the cause and effect. Uh, let me give you a, a quick example, a uh, slight tangent. Let's suppose that you could steal 50 million dollars and in such a way, uh, or well, we don't need to go 50 million, but a, a, a substantial amount of money. You could steal it and no one would know. It, whatever the deal was, however it was arranged, it was an absolute 100% certainty that no one would ever find out that you did it. Now the question is, what would be the harm to you in doing that? And, and before we answer, I want to take God out of the equation. We all know that it's, it's a violation of one of the seven Noahide laws not to steal. Okay, and, and so that's a given. Well, let's just take, take that out of the equation for a minute and take eternal judgment out of the equation and ask ourselves, is there a practical reason why I shouldn't steal if I could completely get away with it? Okay. And Rena, you've mentioned guilt, okay, but let's say that guilt is an emotion, and let's say that I can just overcome the guilt. You know, I, I agree with you. We would probably most of us would would have, you know, a, a fair amount of guilt about that. Conscience will accuse him, okay. Any other thoughts? So here. Oh, hang on just a second, Diane. Okay, Nishama prevents it. 
Okay, so are you saying the, the, the person's soul would prevent them from doing that? I'm assuming that's what you're saying. Yeah, okay, thank you. So here's a thought to consider. The world is set up in such a way that uh, we have to have uh, a societal order. And part of that has to do with uh, the ability to own things. And so we have a, a Noahide law that says you can't steal. Now, if I come along and I have the opportunity to steal money that is not mine, that I did not gain through proper means, and I do that, I have now, the, I would submit to you the worst thing that could happen to me is that I will succeed. And the reason that would be the worst thing that could happen to me is that I have now kind of programmed my mind that I can bend reality. In other words, everybody else has to live by the rules, but I don't have to. I can take shortcuts to get what I want. And so having done that one time and being successful, I have now taught my mind that that's a viable way for me to get stuff that I want. And so I will then be tempted to try it again. And if I am successful the next time, I have now further inculcated this idea in my mind that I can bend the rules and bend reality and get away with it. And if I keep doing that over and over and over, what am I doing to my thinking process? I am destroying my ability to see reality. And I'm starting to see the world in a fantasy where I can get whatever I want without having to pay for it or without having to go through proper channels. And what will happen over time is that as I get farther and farther away from reality, I will take bigger and bigger chances, if you will, because I've convinced myself that, hey, I can do this, you know, I'm invincible. And I will eventually do something that will cause huge consequences because I will almost certainly ultimately get caught and possibly killed in the process. And those consequences will come upon me like an avalanche. And so what I'm doing when I, for, forgetting authority and God and judgment and everything else, I am destroying my own ability to think clearly when I do that, which is ultimately destroying my opportunity to have a successful life. And Diane, you are right, you will lose, I mean, you won't have a, a closeness to Hashem because you're operating outside of his system. So you will lose that as well. I mean, you're essentially operating outside of the system that God created. By definition, that's reality. And so you are going to run into a problem when you try to operate outside of reality. But do you see how it destroys your ability to think clearly and to rationally look at a situation and determine the best course of action for your long-term consequence? We see this throughout history when... A leader gets in power and, and, you know, does some things rationally at the beginning, but then they slowly start to develop a little bit of megalomania. And they start cutting corners and doing inappropriate things, and pretty soon they're doing terribly inappropriate things. I mean, Hitler, you know, 
made some, you know, uh, I won't say admirable moves at the beginning, but they were smart in terms of the objectives that he wanted to get to. But then he began to get this idea that he could do no wrong because he was used to not being able to think clearly. He kind of taught himself through the things that he was doing uh, that he was invincible. And he began to make incredibly irrational decisions in the way he directed his armies and so forth. And eventually the whole thing led to his demise. So uh, when we talk about Mishle, we're talking about those kinds of practical consequences. Uh, that we want to try to to reason out. Now let's go back to our, our wicked person. Um, so the community is going to figure out that he's wicked, and so uh, when he gets into a difficulty, uh, he's not going to have a, a community fall back on or other people who will step in and, and help him. Uh, and even though he had, may have a lot of money, and he might be able to buy his way out of a situation with money, that doesn't always work. And money doesn't solve all problems. So that's one application, one, one possible application, that a, a person will have so alienated himself from others because of his wickedness that no one will help him in a time of trouble. Okay, we questions so far? We're going to discuss some other possibilities, but I wanted to get that one down first. So, let's consider a situation that may also be what the verse is, is talking about, which is when, when the treasures of the wicked will not benefit him, uh, that could be talking about death. Not the death of the second half, but, but death in the first half of the verse. Because all the treasures of, your, of a person's wickedness, all this money and accumulation of wealth and material stuff, will do absolutely nothing for him when he's facing death. And we see that in real life. I mean, I understand there's a very rich individual uh, in New York who was on his deathbed, and he said, what good does the money do me now? I mean, the money cannot save a person from the inevitability of death. In fact, it may prolong the fantasy that they don't have to face death. So, in the end, the treasures of an evil person that they accumulate won't help them uh, in, in the day of death. Now, let me add one more uh, possible interpretation. When it says that the treasures of the wicked won't benefit him, well, what about the obvious things? I think, Rena, you raised the issue, you know, uh, up above a little earlier that, you know, in the short run, um, money can do some nice things. I mean, it does help in certain situations. I mean, it's nice to be able to eat out at fine restaurants and drive expensive cars and, you know, maybe stay at expensive resorts and be able to pay bills, buy a nice home, whatever it happens to be. The answer to that is that money may provide certain physical pleasures but as I think several of you pointed out earlier, the wicked person will be in such conflict that he won't really be able to enjoy them. They won't really benefit him. The righteous person can enjoy, a, a truly enjoy a physical pleasure. I mean, as long as it's not harmful to him or it's not something that's halakhically prohibited. He can enjoy a physical pleasure, maybe a nice glass of wine or some fruit or a bit of, of travel arena, as you suggested, because he's living in line with reality. 
but the wicked person isn't living in line with reality, so by definition he has to be in conflict. And we see that as well in real life. Um, I understand that Al Capone was walking through a city uh, once in the evening, uh, and it was, you know, a little, little duskish or twilight, um, and it's the time when it's dark outside, but if people have the lights on inside, you know, you can look in and see what's going on in their house. And he saw a house with lights on in the living room and the drapes open. And, you know, much like we would see if we walked through a neighborhood at, at dusk. And as I understand the story, he was walking with somebody else, and he was amazed that people actually lived like that. You know, like, can you imagine people live with their drapes open? Because in his world, you couldn't have the drapes open at night because you'd be a target for one of your enemies to shoot at you. And that's the, the world that they lived in because they were constantly in conflict. Okay. Okay, so th that's, that's the life of the wicked. They don't live peacefully. So even if they have material wealth, they can't really enjoy it. Okay, there's constant, constant conflict there. Okay, and Rini, you said the benefit, the verse says, will benefit emphasizing the future rather than the present. Uh, the treasures of the wicked will not uh, benefit him. I can't tell you from the Hebrew whether that is specifically pointing to the future as opposed to just a statement about the condition. Uh, that I'd have to check with, uh, with a, a Hebrew expert. I'm not, I know a little bit of the language, but not enough to be able to uh, comment. Okay, and you're saying it is uh, future in Hebrew. Okay, and do you have a thought about um, what, what that's getting at? Oh, thank you. You're fluent. I'm glad you're here. Um, do you have a, a thought about what that's trying to get at? Because it may be getting at the issue of, you know, they can't enjoy uh, even, you know, their treasures in a, in a future time in, uh, uh, in, in this life. Uh, generally speaking, my understanding is that Proverbs is pointing to this life, not the next one. Uh, although, you know, commentators will probably take uh, different approaches on that. So. Ah, Rena, very good point. We, we like to hoard for the future. That is very, very true. Um, in fact, there's a very interesting point about that, uh, that my mentor, Rabbi Moskowitz, and I wrote an article on years ago. Um, it, it, if you asked a person, uh, you know, do you enjoy pancakes? And they said yes. Uh, we'd probably say, well, that's just fine. Lots of people like pancakes. And if a person said, you know, and I have, you know, maybe an extra six left over from the last time I made them sitting in the fridge, we'd say, yeah, okay. But if they said, and oh, by the way, I have an entire basement full and an attic full of pancakes, we'd look at them like they were nuts. Because saving up something for the future far beyond what your practical need is 
could be termed kind of a form of craziness. And that gets to the treasures of the wicked and people who will save up and save up and save up far beyond, and, and I'm talking about a wicked person that keeps uh, through unjust means accumulating and accumulating and accumulating far beyond what they would ever need to live a practical physical life. There's got to be some emotional element driving them because, you know, at the end of the day they don't need all that stuff. So, okay. So, and Diane, you brought up charity. Okay, so let's talk about charity. How does that save from death? And I'm going to suggest, at least for purposes of, of my understanding and my interpretation, that this isn't talking about some special intervention by God. Because Mishle, again, is about the practical world. So, how can we see this, you know, happening in the practical world? Well, one possibility is that it's talking about a situation where the person is facing a life and death crisis and needs help from the community. And in the opposite kind of situation from the wicked person, if that person is given charity and the person, the community knows this is a person that supports the community and helps the poor and does that kind of thing, then it could be that perhaps the people will identify uh, with him and step in and help him. So that's one possibility, that, that charity uh, saves from death in the sense that if you found yourself in a difficult spot, the fact that you have given charity and supported the community means that people will rally around you. Okay, that's one possible approach. But let's go a little, a little further. What does a person gain for himself by giving charity? A question for you all. What does a person gain for himself by giving charity? Okay, Rena, good. Joy. Okay, Diane, completes a mitzvah. Okay. Any other thoughts about that? friends, okay? Very interesting point. And, and Rena, my, my thought that I want to share, you know, ties in with that. By giving charity, a person identifies with other people. In other words, he gains a certain viewpoint. He recognizes that he's not the only one in the universe but that other people exist as well and have needs just like he does. So the, that identification means that he'll be more empathetic with others. And that means he'll be able to see and identify with their point of view. Okay, Which means that he may recognize the reality of a situation where others are involved and act accordingly. Taking, taking actions that reflect reality, the big picture, okay? And that action and the viewpoint that it represents can save him from making some terrible and even fatal mistakes in life. So his willingness to give charity helps him 
because it helps him recognize the view of others and that can help him avoid some serious errors because he's likely to see a bigger picture in the situation than just his own life. Okay, And again, the rest of the community may recognize that which changes their attitude toward him and that in itself could help him in a, in a time of calamity. Now, if we contrast that with the wicked, the treasures of wickedness aren't going to help the wicked person make better decisions. In fact, they will strengthen him toward making incorrect decisions because he's already making incorrect decisions in the way that he's getting his wealth. And so, ultimately, he's likely to end up in a situation where his wealth uh, may be his undoing. Okay? So, let's take a, a slightly different question. And, and then we'll, we'll circle back to this idea of charity. How does a person protect himself at all in the world? I mean, there's a variety of things that can happen to people. How do we protect ourselves? Is there any common denominator or common thread in how we protect ourselves in life? Whether it's physically or financially or whatever. Okay, Rena, first person loves money, second person loves people. So are you saying that one of the ways we can protect ourselves is by loving people? And Diane, you said the best way to keep our wealth is to give it away. Okay. Okay, Rena, good. Thank you. So, from the Mishle standpoint, King Solomon holds that the only way that a person can protect himself is through knowledge. And again, I'm taking, you know, every possible area of life and we're kind of lumping it all together. In other words, we have to understand how the world works and how human nature works. The way I protect myself from a riptide is to know that a riptide is out there and that I should only, you know, swim so many feet from the beach, otherwise I might get caught. The way I protect myself from being eaten by a grizzly bear is to know where grizzly bears are and not go wandering off a trail or to carry appropriate weaponry or to carry bells on my belt so that I make noise and scare them away or whatever it might be. The way I protect myself from a bad financial investment is to thoroughly um, study that investment and get a lot of knowledge about that area so I understand that area before um, I invest the money. So it's, it's knowledge of the world, of other people, uh, their personalities, lots and lots of different areas of knowledge. Now Maimonides holds... Uh, the great sage Maimonides holds that there are three kinds of harm. Uh, number one is what we could call God-made harm. Uh, things like Mount St. Helens erupts, or a tsunami, or a hurricane, or, you know, things in, in God's systems that can prove harmful to us. Okay. The second is that you're harmed by other people. And the third is that you cause yourself harm. So we could call those uh, outside natural forces, other people, and ourselves. Now Maimonides, interestingly, holds that the first one is rare. You know, the things like the Mount St. Helens or the hurricane. 
that the second that we could be harmed by other people is uh, much more frequent, but that most of our harm that we get in our lives is caused by the third one, that we harm ourselves, and that's because we lack knowledge. Now, there are two parts to having knowledge. There is the knowledge itself, okay, you got to have it, you got to know what a tsunami is or know what a volcano is and you know that gee I'm standing in the way of one and there's steam coming out of there maybe I should get out of the way but the other part is that sometimes I can have emotions that will make me ignorant at a given moment for example anger might make me forget about how much I love a person so our emotions can make us very ignorant at a, at a particular point in time even if I have the knowledge you know I it, you see people do this sometimes with road rage you know they will do crazy things when they're really angry and they they forget their knowledge at that point or it, it it's it's clouded over by that emotion that takes over now there are also uh, a couple of types of emotions. There's the kind that comes up once in a while, like when you have an angry flare-up, and then there's the kind where the emotion is constant, like a person is an angry person or a greedy person. It's like a, a constant part of their character. So with regard to knowledge, we get the ideas and the ideas can start to help us become more objective. Uh, the less knowledge we have, the more ignorant we are and the more we tend to make our decisions in life based on our emotions, on how we feel at a given moment. Uh, and, and that causes us to make mistakes in life. Um, now, we're interested in how here, in, in how we relate to other people. Uh, and there are two systems, justice and what's sometimes called charity or kindness. And I'm using those in a broad sense, not just like the giving of monetary charity, but in, in a broad sense. Um, and uh, justice we may talk about in, in some other classes, but uh, generally speaking, we probably understand the idea that society needs to be just and that we need to operate justly. But when it comes to kindness and charity, different groups uh, have looked at that differently. I mean, there is one culture that said, well, you shouldn't give to poor people because God made them poor. You know, that's, that's their reasoning. Uh, other people have said, well, you shouldn't give uh, to the poor because they might not work for themselves if you, if you give to them. Um, some people went to the Hofetz Chaim, who was a great Torah scholar uh, and a man who became known for his dedication uh, to... Uh, the whole subject of proper speech. And they ask him about this question. You know, what about poor people? And, and you know, should you give, apparently, should you give to them? Or, and he said, it's because of their personality. Which is a really interesting statement. Um, and so let me just elaborate for a second on what my understanding is of what he means by that there are certain weaknesses within the physical world. I mean, God created the world incomplete, and 
left us to complete it. And there are lots of things to complete. There's bread to bake and there's airplanes to build. Uh, there are, you know, discoveries to be made, technologies to be uh, developed and that sort of thing. God gave the world over to man to complete. And the same is true within our social system. We have certain weaknesses in human character. Uh, sometimes, you know, they have to be destroyed. I mean, God destroyed certain nations. They were sort of like a cancer, and apparently there was no help for them. Uh, so they had to be eliminated. In other situations, sometimes uh, we have to act like a crutch and help someone else. Um, a poor person may have a weak personality, and it's our responsibility to help him or her. Uh, and that responsibility recognizes that there's a system going on here. Uh, most people recognize rationally that they have to keep justice, but they may not be as clear about that with regard to charity or kindness. When, when I talk about a system, there are, there are two ways you relate to a system. I, I either use it, but I'm, and I could say, well, I use it, but I'm not part of it, or I recognize that I am part of the system. And I'm talking in here in terms of system about society. Uh, we could say community, uh, but, but a whole group of us dwelling together, whether it's in a city or a county or a country or a state or whatever. If I recognize that I'm part of the system and I see a weakness in the system, like a poor person, then I realize that I have an obligation to help correct it. Okay, And when you totally feel that you're part of the system, then you can reach a point of total objectivity. If I feel like I'm outside the system, like, well, yeah, that's for those people, but, you know, I'm special, I'm different, I, you know, I, I don't need that stuff, then there's a part of me that's focused on myself. But when I realize that I'm part of the system, then the whole self part goes away, my ego, so to speak. And that's what we mean by humility. Uh, I mean, Moses, I mean, one of the greatest men who ever lived, uh, I mean, he clearly knew about his own knowledge and what he was capable of, but he also recognized his place in the system, and that was why he was termed the humblest man who ever lived. He recognized he was just a piece of a system. And as part of that system, we're obligated to deal with and remove any weaknesses in the system. Okay, So what makes us subjective about a particular thing is our involvement with ourselves. And we become objective when we're not involved with the self, but we see the system as a whole. Now. Whenever Mishlei wants to use the highest form of great consequences, it refers to death. Okay, It doesn't necessarily mean, in, when it makes that reference, that you're going to die per se, but what it's saying is you'll have very great consequences because you're not making objective decisions, you're making subjective decisions. So, giving charity helps to move you away from the self and become totally objective because you are saying to yourself you know I'm giving up um, of the physical and recognizing that I'm part of a system here and yes even though I have this money I need to help this person okay um, 
So charity helps me to do that. And by contrast, the more evil that we do, the more then we suffer consequences. We become more subjective. So the whole book of Mishlei is to show that the life of ignorance is a failure and the life of the righteous leads to success. And from all different angles possible, it's showing us that the life of the wicked is nothing at all to be jealous of. In fact, by definition, it has to lead to failure. But the life of the righteous, if it's lived you know, in accordance with the principles that we're learning uh, from King Solomon, that leads to success. Okay? And Rena, you've pointed out the Hebrew word for charity also means righteousness, so it's back to the lessons of the Garden of Eden and the infamous tree of righteousness, good uh, versus evil, right versus wrong, and, and so forth, uh, and, and holiness. So, uh, yes, this the idea of charity gets us back on the right track. The point that he's bringing out in this verse is if we give charity, it helps us become more objective. It helps us become more humble. It moves us out of ourselves and helps us to avoid all the mistaken decisions that come about from being too focused on ourselves. But the wicked, by contrast, they're more involved with the self, and so they make more mistakes and they get greater consequences. Charity also does something else, and that is that it tells us that the physical world is not the most important. Okay? Remember at the uh, last week when I asked you all at the beginning of the class to write out the word participation, and I said that's muscle memory, you know, we learn by doing. When we give charity, it is a muscle memory, if you will. It is a, an, an acting out of the idea to make it clear to us that money is not in the most important thing, but that wisdom is. And that we can enjoy the physical world, but we don't want to become overly attached to it. Because if we become attached to the physical, then we'll make mistakes, and then we won't even be able to benefit from the material wealth that we're able to have. And we'll see more and more of this um, as we get uh, into, into the study of Mishlei. The ultimate success is someone who recognizes that the only real success in the physical world is through wisdom. Uh, in Hebrew, it's Chachma. And Chachma becomes the essence of my life. And the physical isn't the essence. It doesn't mean the physical is bad or I'm trying to become an ascetic or say, gee, I won't enjoy any benefits of the physical world and somehow that'll make me more spiritual or religious. It's not saying that at all. It's just putting them in the right perspective so that we recognize that the essence of our lives is about the wisdom and the physical is there as an opportunity to support that. So giving charity is the act of a personality from a, from a, uh, a Mishle point of view that isn't attached to the physical but is attached to wisdom. Now, circle back to our final question, how does that save us from death? And besides, everybody dies. Well, you can look at death in two ways. If you if you live out your life according to your, your genes and your natural life expectation, then death isn't a punishment. Death as a 
The death as a punishment means that your life is shortened. Um, like take presidents of the United States. I mean, that tends to shorten their lives. If, if you've ever looked at a new president uh, when they go into office and look at their face and their hair and then look at them four or eight years later, you can see the effect of all the stress and the conflict and the struggles and, and what that job does to you. The more tension and conflict that you have, your life gets shortened. So wisdom is the tool that we have for knowing how to deal with the physical world. Now the ultimate consequence to a person, negative consequence, is to have their life shortened. And so, and, and again, we see that, you know, the Al Capones of the world and, and people that live in that kind of lifestyle are constantly in conflict. And so that is going to bring about a shortened life. So thus, charity helps to save you from this because it helps you to put the physical world in its proper place. And you can begin to see that wisdom is what is truly important rather than the physical. Okay, so let me pause for, for questions. Does this make sense? The whole study of of Michelet is all about understanding, you know, the importance of <clears throat> wisdom in our in our everyday lives, and seeing that that is the real essence, uh, and and just one of the most exciting beauties of what we get uh, in the world. <clears throat> While the wicked are so focused on the material that they miss out on what the, you know, what the real uh, opportunity is here. So okay, good. I appreciate those uh, those comments. Um, the, the study of Torah, uh, as I'm sure you are familiar, is equal to that of all the other commandments. And the Torah approach is that the only way you reach God is through wisdom. And the only way to happiness and success is through wisdom. Uh, and that's what we will uh, hopefully show uh, as we work our way through the, uh, the study of Mishlein. Okay, and Rena, I see your comment, giving in all forms is not easy. Can you elaborate? Because I'm not sure, are you talking about giving of charity or, or other types of things? That that just goes against our natural bent? Yes, okay, good. Yeah, it, the, the idea to see ourselves as part of a system is, is, it takes some time. Uh, you know, maybe years to to inculcate that idea as we begin to see that we are, you know, one uh, person, uh, each of us as individuals, part of a sea of humanity that has come before us and will come after us. Uh, and then in societies we're part of a system and sometimes, you know, it's time for me to give something to somebody else just because we're a system and they need help and I happen to have the ability to help them and, and uh, you know, so we, we try to do that. But I agree with you. It, it's uh, not always such a simple thing. Uh, and, uh, and that's part of why we go through these ideas over and over and over, is so that eventually, <clears throat> as we do that, um, 
our our minds begin to get this idea just at a, almost a drip 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 level uh, and over time then those ideas begin to affect us uh, and we're able to you know as you say uh, develop a habit of giving uh, and a habit of, uh, of being able to give joyfully and seeing that you know I'm not necessarily doing someone this giant favor by doing that but that I'm part of a system and that's part of what I do uh, as being part of that system Okay, uh, any other questions before we wrap up? Okay, if you do have questions, please feel free to email me um, at uh, doug at thinkingdynamics.com and I'll see if I can spell that out here and get it up on the board. Um, and otherwise, I will... Uh, I appreciate you all being here. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'll look forward to uh, seeing you next week. And in the meantime, everyone have a great week. Thanks so much.